Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? Going good. How are you doing? I'm doing really great. We have a bunch of news to talk about this week, so why don't we jump right in? It was a long council meeting its third debate the other night. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. There was a bunch of stuff to talk about, but uh, one of the things was all about marijuana possession. Yeah, so most of the council members came to the meeting with some marijuana, and then we just smoked. In the room. That didn't happen. Uh, I wonder if more would get done or less. <laughs> you know, that's a good question. That's a really good question. So the city of Sturgeon Bay, Seth Wieter-Anders, is uh, alderman for the city, and he has been kind of the, the impetus behind the non-binding referendums that were put on the ballot last spring regarding medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, both of which passed. Doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean that it's legal. We've talked about that before. But now what he brought forward is kind of a next step in saying right now the city of Sturgeon Bay has fines on the book for if you get possession of marijuana of less than an ounce, there is a fine of $100 and then the second offense is $200. And what he was proposing is that they still have the citation because it's still an ordinance on the books, it's still illegal. but you just don't enforce a fine. So you'd get that mark on your record, but you wouldn't have to pay the fee because his argument being, these are people using it in the privacy of their own home, usually for medical purposes. And when they get busted and just even having the fear of that fine can make people not use something that's helpful for their health. And since the voters have said, hey, resoundingly approve of that, let's just not fine them for that. So some council members had said, and Mayor Ward said, you, know, you have a fine in part to pay the expenses of what it takes to enforce your ordinance. So $100 is not much to ask. Like if you were cited for throwing rocks in the city, you'd have to pay a fine. So he said, like, if we're going to fine for that, we should probably fine for this. Weeder Anders was arguing that, like I said, that it dissuades people from doing something that's good for their health or that they feel is good for their health and that it's just unnecessary. And the idea that it's, oh, it's just $100 or it's just $200, um, as Kelly Avenson pointed out, like, you know, to a lot of people, that's not just $100. You know, if you're making $20,000 a year or twenty-five dollars or thirty, dollars or you have significant health expenses to the point where you're taking something to medicate for pain, you know, $100, $200 really does matter. And I think anybody who gets a $160 speeding ticket, even if you're really wealthy, you still are pretty pissed about that $160. Right. So. Okay, so, so here's my question. Uh, possession would still be a misdemeanor, right? Yeah, or, okay. it wouldn't change any of the state laws and all that stuff. It's just the city ordinance regarding that and that like the city fine right and then what what is a misdemeanor on your record in the grand scheme of things right exactly you know what i mean <laughs> it's not great but it's not you know gonna stop you from getting a job or anything like that right. so then by by taking away the fine i mean what even is it at that point is it just a slap on the wrist kind of thing is it essentially decriminalizing yeah i mean it's essentially a step toward that and what seth weeder anders had described it as is 
this is also a way to send a message to the state and kind of push them further to come back and take some action on it. Well, when you had brought up that the the fines are a way to pay for the enforcement, is that part of it then too, where it's like, hey, we're not finding anybody anymore. Look at how much this is costing us in the grand scheme of things. Isn't that stupid? Maybe we should pass something to legalize it. Yeah. Is that kind of the, the thought kind process? Of the, I think that's what Seth is getting at. And, you know, Arlie Porter even pointed out, if you do get the citation, even if there's no fine, you still have to pay the $160 in court costs. So there's still costs associated, which makes you go back to like the $100 fine to begin with. You're like, oh, so it's actually 263, you know? Right. Anybody who's ever done with the court system, I have, you go through and once those costs come in, you really start to add up. And then if you decide, all right, I need to have a lawyer present or, you know, one of the big discussions in this country is how those offenses pile up and somebody has multiple offenses. So you get caught with something relatively minor like marijuana possession can be made exponentially worse by some of the priors you might have. And I I forget Kelly pointed out because Helen Bacon made some points about clearly this is where the public is going. They want this. They want this legalized. But as a public health professional, she was saying this is people should know that this will lead to increased burdens on our public health department and our nurses and our law enforcement and all these things because other stuff will start to happen more often. Seth said, well, I don't know that you're going to have any more problems than you do now. And people just won't be trying to hide it. But what was she getting at specifically? Just treatment, um, rehab, things like that. She said, you know, most people use alcohol responsibly. Most people use marijuana responsibly who do. But then there's that 10% who get addicted and have major problems with it. It's kind of an age-old debate whenever these things come up of, of whether or not it's better to legalize it and just have it out in the open. Will you have less enforcement costs and impact on society? Or... Will it run rampant and now you have tons of more people addicted? To which Kelly Evanson brought up, okay, then if we're going to talk like that, then we have to talk about alcohol. Right. I mean, and also so, to, to be like, well, what would happen if we were to, don't we have data on that at this point? I mean, there's, there's tons of research. Yeah. And there's states that have had marijuana legalized for years at yes. this point. So it's not really a, a what would happen if we were to do it. It's like, well, look at other places that have. Does the data support the fear? And I would probably wager that it doesn't. It is interesting where we put our emphasis. I've talked about this before about, you know, do you want to put your emphasis on regulating marijuana or regulating opioids and how bad those are for you? But another way to compare this is where do we spend our time trying to fix things like cars? One of the most dangerous things we have are vehicles. You know, it kills 40,000 people a year. It injures and maims and permanently disables many, many hundreds of thousands more. It's really dangerous for pedestrians and, and cyclists. If you really wanted to talk about safety, you'd be like, let's have a serious conversation about how we handle cars and roads and things like that versus many other aspects of our society. Take terrorism. In the last 20 years, including 9-11, terrorism has resulted in about four to 5,000 American deaths, not counting the soldiers we sent to go fight it, but just like civilians. Car crashes kill 41,000 a year. Imagine if we put all the money and conversation and expertise into trying to make cars safer and regulate our roads better and make better drivers versus take everything that that same amount of resources that we went in because a few thousand people died from terrorism and put that all toward, hey, let's make cars so we can get that number down to like a thousand a year instead of what it is. Right. So it, it's just, it's where we, our perceptions as society and where we like to emphasize things is kind of strange. Well, okay. So one last question on the, the marijuana thing before we move on. 
what power does the county have in regards to this? You know what I mean? I mean, we, we talked about a little bit putting pressure on lawmakers, but is there anything that can be done? Like Door County couldn't legalize marijuana on its own, right? No. That has to come down from the state. No, they could, if this is something that they want to see legalized, things like what Mr. Weeder Anders is doing start to put it in the public eye more often. It starts to put it in people's heads. It makes people have these discussions. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who the last time around probably went into that thinking, yeah, we should definitely not legalize that and maybe had their minds go, you know what, actually, this wouldn't be all that bad and probably voted for it. There might have been some other people the other way as well. But getting these conversations, because once they have it at City Hall, then it becomes a conversation in the newspaper, then it becomes a conversation at the local bar or coffee shop or breakfast table or somebody's dinner table. And that's how you have this slow roll of change. So it's, just, it's smart by him to bring it up. At first, I was like, why is he doing it at this local level? It's a state issue. But this is how it becomes a state issue. And until municipalities start to push, Joel Kitchens, our representative, or Andre Jacques, or even Ron Johnson at the federal level, they're not going to act unless they start seeing a groundswell come up below them. They're not going to proactively go out and try and take on a controversial issue that doesn't really grab them. Right. And and would you say that Door County is unique on this issue in terms of Wisconsin or not necessarily? So if it's happening here, it's probably happening elsewhere. Probably. I'd have to admit I don't follow it as closely outside of Door County to see like what other communities are pushing for these kind of issues or um, referendums or changes at their city and local level. But I would feel pretty confident saying it's probably happening in many places with, throughout the state right now. I think the best part about not having fines for marijuana possession is it's going to save you a ton of money in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> so next up in the news, the West Side School sold. We, I think we talked about this last week, but remind me, where is the West Side School? It's on the West Side. Of? Sturgeon Bay. Okay. Is that no, the one? Uh, if you're heading south, you cross over the steel bridge to the West Side. I mean, I always think of it as going south. So when growing up, it was always weird to me, like east side, west side. I think of it more as like north and south side. Um, what I consider the south side is considered the west side, the old Sawyer hamlet. But if you're going, continuing up Madison Avenue, the old west side school is the building that probably anybody who's ever passed it has gone, ah, oh, what are they doing with that building? It's an old red brick school. Is it the one by the skate park? Yes. Okay, yeah, so we did talk about that last week when we talked about the cool derelict school building by the yeah. skate park. Man, it's sold. Now those kids aren't going to have an abandoned school to skate next to. No, there will be no skating in this school. Peter Mead, the owner of Centerpoint Marina, has owned that, I believe, since 2004. He sold it to a man named Andy Dumpke of, I think it's North Star uh, Development. And they went to the plan commission last night for initial discussion of a project there, which is going to be a residential development, uh, kind of historic rehabilitation project. So don't know a lot more than that, but uh, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people, particularly in Sturgeon Bay, will be pretty interested in that and mostly all over Door County because I think a lot of people have always wondered like what's going on there or that would make such a cool space or that could be a really cool apartment building of some sort. I think it, the development agreement, I was talking to Mayor David Ward yesterday. He said it might involve um, buying that ball field that's next to it and doing a little expansion of the building. I don't know what degree of that, if it be a major build-out or just a small thing, or if the bulk of the property would be where the ball field is and, like, the school would be kind of like a figurehead centerpiece of it. But, I mean, that's a vital piece for Sturgeon Bay. To have something happen there would be 
A, I mean, a really cool apartment. I'm guessing if someone made those, I doubt it would be like low-end affordable housing, but it's a great opportunity to develop some sort of downtown housing, which is kind of that infill development that every city wants now, or at least should want. There's also some really cool views from the upper floors of that. And you can see the shipyards and the gantry crane and, and see like the beautiful bay of Sturgeon Bay, but also the historic industry of Sturgeon Bay. Yeah, and so. the cool skate park right next door too. And the really cool skate park. Yeah, so I mean, if it if it was in the affordable range for like younger families, that would be a plus for me. Like mm-hmm. if, I, if I had a young kid, I'd be like, hey, look, we can get the apartment next to the skate park. Yeah. I was down there the other day at Kitty's, um, Kitty O'Reilly's, which has like this really cool, have you been in there? Yes. It's like a really cool like outdoor tiki bar and big patio area that was just packed the other day. Because it's a little more dispersed and they don't have quite the depth of the tourism ministry of the northern part of the county, maybe they just don't have the bulk population. So sometimes it can feel like, oh, Third Avenue is really quiet. Where are the people? I, I find myself asking that all the time. But in Sturgeon Bay where people go, are all places that you really can't see from the road. So a lot of people hang out at Stone Harbor on the water. Well, you can't see that from the, the highway. Um, a lot of people hang out at Kitty O'Reilly's or Waterfront Mary's, and all those places are kind of dispersed, whereas some of the northern towns, everything's packed together and right in, in the downtown. So like if you go through Ephraim at night, you just see all the throngs of people walking around, seeing the sunset. Same thing in Egg Harbor, same thing in Sister Bay. So it's kind of been interesting going around like, oh, here's where they all are in these little pockets. Uh, anything else on the, the school selling before we move on? I want to jump out of Sturgeon Bay a little bit, but we are sure. going to come back after the break uh, and talk about the, the rest of the uh, west side and the west waterfront development specifically. So stick around after the break for that because there's some really, really interesting stuff going on there that came out of the meeting last night. Uh, but anything else on the, the school before we move on? No, that's it. Cool. Uh, so moving out of Sturgeon Bay and heading to Sister Bay, we'll talk just briefly about this. So there is a Lego event that's happening this weekend. It's called Bricks by the Bay. And you went to this last year, right? Yeah, I have 11 nieces and nephews. So I have grown quite accustomed to going to kids' events. And this kids' event was actually really cool. <laughs> um, well, and we should say, too, that, you know, it's a great thing to bring kids to. But the event is actually put on by uh, a group of adult fans of Lego or yeah. a falls called Wizlug, which is like the Wisconsin Lego something something Wisconsin Lego users group. Yes. Okay. So it is a group of adult fans of Lego uh, or a falls who come together and they make incredible creations. I know this by the way, because they have an entire index of terms on their website, <laughs> which is great because then you can figure all this stuff out. Like uh, my favorite bit of trivia is, do you know that Legos don't exist? Only Lego bricks. <laughs> There's no such thing as Legos. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing where it's like you don't have sheeps. You have sheep. Okay. Right? Uh, so you went last year. Tell me a little bit about it. Uh, yeah, they do it in the Sister Bay Village Hall. And last year, uh, Louise Housen from Sister Bay said they had 2,500 people stream through. Uh, this year, it's over two days. It was really cool. Like They had just a bunch of generally cool Lego stuff. But they also had a lot of Door County icons made out of Legos. So they had like an Al Johnson's, a really cool version of Al Johnson's, Wilson's, um, the Washington Island Ferry, a couple of the lighthouses, the Sister Bay Waterfront Pavilion, all made out of Legos and done in really cool fashion. So I think it was worth it just to check that out. They also had like a massive like five foot Lego goat last year. I don't know if that's coming back, but it was pretty cool. 
I read that there's going to be like a four-foot Duplo pony. There is. That kids can actually get on and sit on. Yeah. Um, they can't ride it because, you know, it won't be running around. Yeah, it won't go anywhere. But, but they can get on this thing. Last year, there were a couple of different setups with moving trains going through the village. One of them took up like almost the entire stage of the village hall. I'm not sure it's going to be that extravagant this year or not. I, I don't know the details because it's kind of different users that come up and build this this year. But last year had like a double-decker train moving all around. And it was really cool. You see kids just like transfixed by it. And honestly, adults transfixed by all this stuff. I might have walked through multiple times. And I talked to one of the builders. He's not there this year. But I talked to him last year and he said growing up, his parents tried to get him involved in all sorts of other stuff, but he just kept gravitating back to Legos. And he's an engineer now. Uh, his name is Tim uh, Kabish is his name. And he went to the Milwaukee School of Engineering, but always stayed involved with Legos and over like 10 years worked on this project to perfect a Lego version of Miller Park with an actual retractable roof that fans open and close. So he had like electricity connected to it and just made this thing, you know, not from a plan, but just trying to find the right colored bricks to try and match it as good as possible, which actually he takes that thing like around the state and displays it. And I think it's library at the Milwaukee School of Engineering is like his home base, but I'd love to get that thing up here just because I'm, you know, a sports fan. You know, Legos, Legos always been interesting to me because I never grew up with Legos. I was a kid during Legos like dark ages when the company was on the verge of bankruptcy and they were trying everything that they could to branch out and, and save themselves. So like I grew up with Bionicle, which was Legos action figure construction thing. Because again, they were doing everything that they could to try to figure something out to save the company. I sometimes forget that you're like 15 years younger than me. Yep. So there's this whole era of toys and games and cartoons and kids shows that is a total gap in my knowledge that you have. Right. That I just missed. Yeah, so I, I didn't grow up with Legos, but I started to learn more about Legos in college because I worked at the Mall of America all through college. And oh, holy hell. the Lego store at Mall of America is like the top one of the top five Lego places in the world. Like they have a giant 25 foot robot standing on top of it, all made out of Lego bricks. And where does Mall of America rank among the worst places in the world? It actually wasn't that bad. I, I had the opportunity to work at really cool stores. Okay. Um, so I like it for me, it was always doing cool stuff that I enjoyed. Uh, but I did have friends who worked like events at the Mall of America and that kind of stuff. And those could be like really challenging. Isn't there like a small roller coaster inside or something yep, like that? Yep, there's yeah. a Nickelodeon Universe. is okay. an entire theme park that is inside the Mall of America, which you would only go through if you were trying to cut through the mall, but you could only do it in the off-season because it, you would waste time walking through there in the summer. But yeah, and then I went to Disney World and saw, again, more incredible like Lego sculptures. So like that's a part of it, but then also like the mocks or the My Own Creations, those are... Most of what you'll see when, if you go to the event this weekend is just people making new things out of Lego rather than, you know, sets that Lego sells. Yeah. They also do that at the Lego event. They have like a build tent outside. They have a bunch of tents out there so with just tons of bricks so kids can go and just like make stuff. Right. Which is cool. Yeah, that, that's a big part of the Lego stores too is that if you want to kill an hour or two with your kids, take them and just let them build stuff. You know what I mean? You can build stuff and then you can buy whatever you build. This is a, a, a good example of that where it's like not only do you get to see all the cool stuff that they've made, but then you can bring your kids in and you can make stuff with them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And where it's located up in Sister Bay, like the Village Hall, for those unfamiliar, is um, located as part of Waterfront Park. It's like right next to the beach. So 
If you want to go and hang out at the beach and then check out the Legos, it's right there. If you want to go put your kids in the Lego stuff, go across the street and get a beer at Stabur or up the street um, somewhere else in town. It's a great location to do it and right. kill uh, an afternoon with the kids. Right. And uh, last piece on this before we move on, but the group Wizlug is based out of Madison or Milwaukee, I think. Yeah. Um, they've got locations where they have like meetings and stuff like that in there. Uh, but then they come up every year and do this kind of like small get together. And it's cool that they're doing it up in Door County. But there's also like weekly or monthly Lego events that happen up here. Just in general. Are there? Yeah. There's um, I th- one of the libraries puts on a, like a weekly or a monthly Lego group where you can, you know, get together and bring your kids and play with Lego and do all sorts of stuff like that. And do you go to that each week? I, I haven't. But the two events that I want to make a video about are the, the Lego groups that get together up here. And then at the Algoma Public Library, they play Super Smash Brothers. And I think that I'm the best Super Smash Brothers player in Door County. And I was talking to Matthew Marcon about this last year when I first saw the event, and I was like, oh, I should go and see if I can beat everybody there. But then when I looked, I was like, oh, it's all going to be children, and that might not be (laughs) a video where I come in and just crush a bunch of children in a video game. (laughs) might be funny, but might also not be exactly the the best look for me. So That's great PR for the company. So with that, why don't we take a break, Miles, uh, and then when we come back, I want to talk about all of the proposed planning for the West Waterfront. This has been, what, five years in the making at least? Uh, and they've they've come up with some pretty interesting things moving forward for this. So let's dig into that when we come back. All right. They call themselves the Stradivarius builders of Sturgeon Bay because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood and metalwork, anything you imagine. They did it so beautifully well. The first fishermen came down the lake from Mackin Island, worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan, and they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2,000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County, past, present, and future. To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash ourdoorcounty. Okay, so, Miles... We had talked almost a year ago about trying to put together a whole podcast episode about the West Waterfront because the journey has been full of all sorts of stuff. If you listen to any of the podcasts where we talk about the granary, the West Waterfront comes up and we've dug into the details here and there over the last year. But it seems like we're finally at a point now where we're ready to make progress, right? We're ready to jump in and see if we can you know, make something cool out of the West Waterfront. And it seems like that's kind of what the proposal is, at least in my cursory reading of the article that you put together. Yeah, but it's Sturgeon Bay, so it's totally going to flip next week. But sure, let's stay in the moment and let's feel good about this. Like uh, David Shannock said, as a co-chair of this committee that made this proposal, let us move forward. <laughs> let's move forward and be positive and take a next step. Yeah, like you said, this has been about a nine, ten year process that they've been going through developing. I think this is, I would call this maybe the fourth iteration of West Waterfront plans. And this is a committee that was formed. The city council got rid of the Waterfront Redevelopment Authority, which has kind of always controlled this process, last summer and formed a new committee, an ad hoc West Waterfront Advisory Committee that 
encompassed like a, they tried purposely to get a good mix of women and men, people with kids, people without, skewing to the younger side because as Laurel Hauser said, you know, we want people on this committee who are going to be the people who use this park for the next 30, 40, 50 years, not just older folks who's, you know, most of their life is behind them, you know. So they came up with a plan that was significantly different than past plans. Well, and before we jump into this new plan, let's very, very briefly just kind of give a nutshell version of what has been the journey thus far and why has it taken us so long and why has there been so much controversy over the last 10 years? Dumpster fire? <laughs> All right, well, that's, that's a two-word <laughs> sentence. Let's expand it into, like, two sentences. Um, used to be the co-op buildings, was industrial. About 10 years ago, cities decided that's a prime piece of property. Let's try and get some development there. First round was they did get a lot of public input, came back with a plan by, I think, about 2012 that incorporated the granary, incorporated a lot of public space, and kind of small-scale development of two to three stories a mix of retail and commercial, and a small boutique hotel. That didn't get going. They came up with a new iteration that included a brewery that they thought was going to move forward with the owners of Shipwrecked um, that would incorporate and turn the granary into a brew pub. Then that fell apart. And then kind of out of nowhere, a plan was unveiled that included a 90-unit large-scale hotel plopped down basically taking up the waterfront viewpoint, not on the water. There was still public use, but like a little off the water. That sparked the big controversy, lawsuits, lawsuits over the ordinary high watermark, all sorts of big, dumb hotel campaigns. And then that's where it's kind of been stuck in the mud for the last four years. That was in 2015. Right. The hotel development is kind of where I came into the story, and that's my breadth of knowledge on it is that there's been this really controversial plan to build a big hotel there that got nixed there were lawsuits abundant but then last year that kind of cleared up and a lot of loose ends were tied up in that portion of it there was a new the ad hoc committee was assigned last year and now we're at a point where we have a new proposal by that committee that we can potentially move forward with Potentially. Okay. Um, Now, it was interesting to hear you talk about the first proposal because that sounds a lot like this new proposal. They are similar. There's a couple things that really stuck out to me about what the folks did on this committee. One of the things that always alarms me when people put together a plan is when they put a lot of the focus on parking. And some of the previous plans definitely did that. This one actually takes a different approach and says, like, all right, how do we get more creative with this? We don't need all these massive parking lots. If you look at an aerial view, and I encourage anyone who's interested in this property at all, go to Google Maps, take a view of that west side, and just note how much of it is just asphalt. Right. And even if they don't put a single parking space on parcels 92 and 100, all the land around there, there is so much asphalt. And I drive down there a lot covering Sturgeon Bay now. It's usually all empty. Well, and the the spot, particularly right next to the bridge where the Maritime Museum is, mm-hmm. even the Google satellite photos are from years ago because there's structures on that property that aren't there anymore. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. I believe the granary is still there mm-hmm. in its original spot. Whereas if you were to go there now, it's big cement field, basically. Mm-hmm. And are the dirt piles still there, too? No. Okay. I mean, there's kind of a berm. I'd call it a dirt berm. But this plan calls for getting more efficient with the Maritime Museum parking lot and using some of the outer edges of those parking lots and making them open for residential or retail development rather than just be more open parking spaces. 
pushing development to the street side, which is keeping in the character of the existing west side development and eliminating some of these missing tooth sections of the west side where you have a building up on the highway, but then let's say like where the Greystone Castle is and a couple more and then nothing. Instead, you push the development to that street side so pedestrians are kind of pulled, oh, I want to check out that place. Oh, I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to keep walking. Much like Fish Creek is a good example of that. They also encourage the city to look at rearranging agreements with the boat launch and the DNR to say, like, hey, do you really need all this parking? What if we provide some parking in a different spot? What if we put a parking garage structure, which they talked about putting between like Glass Coffee House and Bayside Bargains, and maybe doing some development there? They see that as like a prime lot. There's like an open field and a parking lot. And they say, all right, let's get development there and then put a parking structure kind of behind that. They came up with some pretty creative ideas regarding parking. And then as far as the waterfront, there is some waterfront access throughout Sturgeon Bay. There's actually more than you would think. It's just that they don't sell it and they don't really invite people into it. So you can actually walk behind the Bridgeport and out on that pier where the railroad used to go and you can walk along Centerpoint. It's all public, but there's nothing that really grabs you. If you walk down there and you walk around, you start to go, is this belong to the condo owners? Like, am I trespassing? Even Stone Harbor in front of that is public, but it doesn't really pull you in. So I talked to Pam Seiler from the Sturgeon Bay Visitor Center. They are currently in the works on coming up with signage that would go on all the light posts that would just show people like this is Sturgeon Bay's waterfront promenade and we want to invite you in. And this plan incorporates that same idea of saying, let's make it a grand promenade, a centerpiece of the city and get people down there. So that's a big emphasis. And I think that's a really smart decision because you really have to tell public that it's there. You got to sell it. Uh, one thing that I would recommend is that um, you should pull up, there's renderings and kind of aerial views and maps about all of this stuff that will be in the Pulse this week and on DoorCountyPulse.com. And I would recommend that you side-by-side -side compare with an aerial view from Google Maps because the two things that I noticed is, number one, the project actually is a lot more expansive than I thought. It's not just confined to the parking lot next to the Maritime Museum. Yeah. It expands out from that. Uh, and then looking at the new developments and then comparing to what's there now, you find that, yeah, there's a lot of empty space oh, yeah. in Sturgeon Bay that this is seeking to utilize. The, the other part of it, from my standpoint, as somebody who maybe is uh, naive to this kind of thing, this looks like it checks a lot of boxes in terms of what you would want from a project like this. You have a lot of public space, kind of a green area, uh, a gathering point. There's arts integration. The waterfront is expanded in terms of it, its public presence. Uh, but then you also have development that is good. You have a mix of residential and business development. Uh, you're filling in a lot of gaps over there. This could turn this area into kind of a centerpiece for Sturgeon Bay that I think it's always had the potential to be. This looks like it's going to really pinpoint that more. If you're taking the rosiest outlook possible, and one of the things that's going to be controversial is it suggests moving the granary to the foot of the Oregon Street Bridge, not its original location, still on the property, but just over to the side. And the thinking being, we get that, and if Maritime Museum ever finishes raising money for their Maritime Tower, you would have the Maritime Tower by the Steel Bridge, the granary by the Oregon Street Bridge, and really these two tall structures that play on the area's history, framing the city's centerpiece park. Then you'd have within that park, like a, a water feature, kids' water play feature. You could have um, different public art. One thing they reference is how the, 
the bean in Chicago has become just a centerpiece and symbol of the city. Other cities have something similar, Philadelphia with the like the love sign or the Rocky statue or something like that. Yeah, it's not going to, you know, Sturgeon Bay is not on that level citywide, but like creating something there that becomes an icon of your city and then framing it with those two things that play on both the agricultural history and the maritime history, the two probably most prominent features of, of Sturgeon Bay history and in a lot of ways, Door County history. So you look at that and go like, wow, this could be a beautiful space that plays into our history and our culture and who we are and also takes us to the next step, which is like our modern era of tourism and and public space and waterfront access. I looked at last week, we talked about the tourism numbers in the county and Sturgeon Bay has had like the smallest increase in um, occupancy rate over the last 10 years. And they kind of ranked middle of the pack among store county communities in terms of occupancy percentage in peak season. And the previous city administration's approach to fixing that was to build more hotel rooms. Well, if you're not filling the ones you already have, why do you think building a new hotel is going to solve that problem? Instead, this approach would take the approach that other communities in the county have done that has worked out pretty successfully, which is Bailey's Harbor, Egg Harbor, Sister Bay have all grown their tourism base and their occupancy rates over the last 10 years. They're the three communities that have invested significant funds into just public parks, waterfront access, and infrastructure. So this would be more in line with that approach. So it's a it's a different tack than they've taken before because the, the previous approaches were like, let's put our, all our eggs in like one or two big developments, whether it be a brew pub and a hotel or just a hotel. Now this is saying, let's put it into the park and then a diverse range of development. Uh, so... From my perspective, uh, this sounds great, and uh, they should start work tomorrow. What's the reality of it? Uh, so what happens next, the council will review it. They, so it was just like presented to the council. Now the council reviews it, discusses it, maybe refers it. I think it would pretty much have to go to the plan commission, and then it would have to be adopted by the plan commission. And It wouldn't have to be, but usually a town wants to, the recommendation of the plan commission, and then they go ahead with that. Then they would have a public hearing, so people could come in and weigh in on it. There's already been a lot of public discussion about it, but then that's just the way the process works. Something like this, you'd have to have a public hearing that would take place at a council meeting, probably the first one in August, I believe. There's the hurdle of the granary. Christy Weber at the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society has told me, and she's the president of that society, she has told me she is not in favor of moving it. And if they want to move it, the city's going to have to come up with funds. The whole thing to this point has been, we're going to move it, put it back in an original location. We have an anonymous donor and they're going to pay for it. But now if they want to move it, they're going to have to probably put in new pilings and then, of course, the cost of just moving it again. And that would change the development agreement with the historical society and cost a chunk of money and then the city might have to pay for that. Yeah, so probably cheaper to move it this time because you don't have to put it on wheels and move it over a bridge. You just have to tie some ropes to it and drag it to its new spot, right? <laughs> well, you'd keep it on wheels, but yes, you wouldn't have to go over the bridge. I just drag it. You get like... I don't know, 50 people there to push. You could probably get it over to the <laughs> yeah. new spot. It's like 15 feet to the left, right? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. But that brings me to another point that happened later in the meeting is Alderman Gary Nault had proposed putting the development agreement with the Historical Society on every agenda until the city was satisfied that the work was complete and, and that they didn't need to worry about it. But he kind of phrased it as, yeah, because we, we want to get updates on the progress. But he was suggesting they put it in for consideration of And that's a little bit of language that means a lot. So if you put it on the agenda as consideration of, the council could take action and vote at any meeting based on anything that came up to change that agreement. 
in most council members' eyes, that requires having the attorney there because this is a legal document that they've agreed to with the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society. So now you have to have the attorney at every meeting, which costs money. And then also, if it's a legal agreement, you probably have to go into closed session to discuss it. So there's all these other hurdles with it. Um, and if you're going into closed session, you have to post that you're going to go into closed session. So there's all these other things you'd have to take. So instead of putting it in as consideration of, if you put it in as discussion of development agreement, then you can put that on every meeting and it is just discussion. Your legal bases are covered because you're not going to take action on something that's just up for discussion. So that little difference of discussion of versus consideration of changes that a lot. And basically, if you're reading between the lines with uh, Alderman Nault, he's basically putting in there like wants the flexibility to maybe end that agreement or put stipulations in there or, or change it at any time which is something that I don't think you would do with any development agreement ever in other cases because no developer would agree to an agreement. I don't think, you know, I wouldn't if the city was going to say, we might change this anytime. <laughs> like, I wouldn't want to spend my time going to those meetings. And then Nolt also proposed that the city vote to not accept the gift of the granary right after. That was another thing, which again, they couldn't do Tuesday because that wasn't an agenda item. So you can't take action on a non-agenda item like that. So that might come up at the next meeting. What does that mean to not accept the gift of the granary? The, the agreement would be to move it back and then they give it to the city. If the city says, we don't accept it, it might have to be moved again and taken off that property. All right, so here's my professional opinion. Take the donor money and put a chunk of it into attaching permanent wheels to the building. <laughs> and that solves everybody's problems. Because then you don't have to pay to move it anymore. You can just, you, like I said, you can just, just hitch it up. Car. Or you could put it, like, attach it to a trailer. You could just pull it. Wherever you need to pull it. So when you were saying it looks like a big positive step forward, that's why I'm skeptical is you still have people in the city and on the council doing these machinations to kind of go in a different direction. I shouldn't say kind of, like totally go in a different, different direction. So as one group in the city is moving forward and everyone's saying it's positive, there's a parallel group that still believes that they're going to win the day and get what they wanted, and probably get their hotel on the water. So, and do you think that wheels on the granary would solve that issue? <laughs> I don't think that is the solution, but, you know, anything's possible. We could at least try it. Uh, anything else on the West Waterfront before we wrap up today, Miles? Uh, no, I was just, I, I got to say, I was really impressed with the way those people on that committee went about their business in a very open manner, accepted a ton of input, had the guts to make some controversial decisions with that plan and suggestions for that plan and really kind of do some bolder things in a very tough climate. I mean, these are people who own businesses who who have to answer for this. And it's not easy to do what, what they've done. And also, they had to do this and be persistent, even though they didn't want that decision that the city council made to move the granary back. They wanted to create their plan and they decide where it goes and and if it goes there. And the city threw that wrench in, in the middle of that, and they could have just said, all right, we're done. We're, we're out of here. I'm not putting my time into this if you're just going to undermine us. But they stuck with it and kept doing the work. And even knowing through all this that the city might just flip them off at the end of the day and, and throw out their work. That, that could very well happen. But, you know, those people deserve a ton of credit because it's a ton of time to do what they did. Well, I think that's just about going to do it for us this week, Miles. Thank you so much for chatting with me, and I look forward to chatting with you again.
Yeah, thanks for uh, letting me work through all these issues in my head again because I, I know I've got so much more to do on them. Well, it, it's big stuff, and, and, you know, I've alluded to it before, but we probably should put together a West Waterfront episode of the podcast that okay. really chronicles everything from start to finish. A 24-hour <laughs> series of podcasts. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a live podcast with a camera pointed on us while we just down coffee and talk for an entire afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, Miles, and I'll see you again next week. Thanks, Andrew. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit doorcountypulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.